Welcome to the Ad Astra podcast. Today we have with us uh, Laura Ackerman Smaller. Uh, welcome. Uh, uh, she's a, pro a professor of history at the University of Rochester uh, in New York. And uh, one of her most famous works, she has several, of course, is the book History, Prophecy, and the Stars, uh, which was. Um, a book a that a reference book for, for us, us and yeah. for our work, and it has been constantly a reference book uh, in, in many aspects. So, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to to chat with you all. Thank you. And uh, could you uh, please um, give us a, an idea about your research and how you came into this topic? Okay, so I. I began graduate school in history in many years ago now, the fall of 1983. And I remember well preparing for that fall by spending the summer, as any good medievalist would do, reading Latin. So I was reading, I had a lovely, the Loeb Classics version of Augustine's Confessions. And I had the um, Charles Singleton edition of Dante's Divine Comedy that has also three volumes of commentary, including sources cited by Dante in, in the original languages and English translations. So I was reading Augustine's Confessions and came to this wonderful part, you know, which I had read in English, right, of where his father more or less disproves astrology by this case of not twins, but children that were born at the same time to vastly different fates. Okay, this is, you know, around the year 400. And then I'm reading, rereading Dante, and, and he arrives in paradise in the stars of Gemini, and he says, there's suddenly this apostrophe to the stars that made him a great poet. And so the simple question that was in my mind as I started graduate school is, wait, how, how do we get from influential church father who, you know, has this quite definitive proof against astrology and then much more in the city of God to the great Christian poet of the Middle Ages thanking Gemini for making him a poet. I realized that was a naive question. It was a question that, that people had answered already. And I also, when I started graduate school, I thought it was sort of an illegitimate question to be studying astrology. This is not what people did. And I had announced that I was coming to study intellectual and cultural history. And I was quite sure that, that, you know, whatever intellectual history was and whatever cultural history was, it was with a capital I and a capital C. And my little weird interest in astrology didn't count. But as I was preparing for oral exams and I was reading medieval intellectual history with John Murdoch, a name you probably know from history of science and history of mathematics. He simply put his students to reading sources and every week I would go in and meet with him and I would, you know, I would begin to say, did you notice the part about astrology? And, and finally he sort of gave me permission. He said, this is what you want to write about, isn't it? <laughs> Go and I sort of looked, you know, it's like, oh, wait, one could do that. 
and, and he mentioned Tullio Gregory, um, Italian scholar who had written about astrology and I began to realize, oh wait, this is possible. So then when I you know, had finished all comprehensive exams and was you know, set out on my own to, to come to a dissertation topic, I thought, oh, okay, I can do this. And, and to tell you the truth, I honestly sat down with Lynn Thorndike's History of Magic and Experimental Science, started in the first volume and started reading and looking, thinking, can I do something, anything here, anything here. And when I came to the section on Pierre Dailly, and then I started looking to see, and that was a name I knew from medieval intellectual history, right? Nominalist theology, great theory of the church council, great theorist of the church councils. So I knew there was scholarship on him, and but there was nothing about the astrology. And I thought, ah, this is great. And it, it, it really gets at that question in some ways that still was haunting me. Why would someone who knew better, a theologian, the chancellor of the University of Paris, why would he be mucking around with something I was afraid to tell my professors I was interested in? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to Pierre Dailly. That's mm -hmm. interesting. And th that's also, in the 80s, it was a very um, courageous thing to do because it could be career suicide right there. <laughs> it could be really, you know, that that is why you were so reticent to, to, yeah. to, to confess to your supervisor about your um, dark uh, research <laughs> or something. No, they, that, that was really something mm -hmm. brave. Brave. Well, I think I've actually been protected by um, a certain naivete my whole career. So I don't think I realized how that it was as courageous as I thought it was just quirky and a little weird. Mm -hmm. so I, it, if I try to make my life make sense, I can say with honesty, when I was a small child, I did not color within the lines. But that really has more to do with a lack of technique in coloring. But, but <laughs> I, 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 I do have trouble staying, you know, on one side of a boundary. And so I, courageous, I would say maybe a little foolhardy, but I, you know, in the eighties in the States, at least, when you went to apply for graduate school, everybody sat you down and said, there are no jobs. So, you know, I might as well do something I was interested in. I'm not gonna get a job at the end of it anyway. Um, but it's true there were, there were there wasn't much scholarship, and, and, and the most of the scholarship at the time I started researching was very technical. So it was, it was Otto Neugebauer and, and uh, um, yeah. even John D. North's work was very, very technical. And his student, Hilary Carey, who was writing a little bit before I was, it was very important for her to master all of, all of these techniques, right? Um, and and I, I found myself at a certain point having to, you know, pull out pencil and paper and go back to high school trigonometry because I, at that point, you know, it was really important to be able to, to, to show to the technical people that I could do the technical stuff. Yes, mm -hmm. you could do the mathematics. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. at that, that period, the main research focus was is still within the history of mathematics and astronomy, which would imply a lot of calculus more than than what we saw appearing later and after your book, and your book was also contributed to that, which is to understand the intellectual history, the cultural history, the cultural role, uh, uh, which goes a little bit beyond the technical 
mathematical right. aspects right. of astrology. Right. Yeah. But I have great, great admiration for the people who have this technical mastery, and and, and it's been it's been made much easier now by the fact that well, there are all these wonderful computer programs. But but I'm always in awe, for example, when I read you know Jean-Patrice Boudet, and and he's able to say, well, yes, actually. This horoscope has the following errors in it because you can say something really interesting then when you are able to consider the level of competence of the person who's writing. And it's, you know, the fact that Johannes Lichtenberger is a plagiarist and not a great astrologer adds something to understanding this famous prognostication of his. Yes, yes and th this is uh, this requires uh, knowledge of the technique, at least the mathematics involved. And sometimes also, uh, when we say techniques between ourselves, we are not so much referring to the mathematical part, but to the astrological interpretation techniques. Yeah, to the so doctrine. That also that one. Also the right. Right. There was a wonderful book that came out, and it was just, I think, as I was finishing up my dissertation or revising it for a book by Tamsin Barton about ancient astrology. Do you, do you know this book where she, she has this wonderful chapter where she takes Prince Charles's horoscope and she interprets her interpretation based on everything she read in Ptolemy? And it's it's both amusing and and really gives one a sense of how complicated all of these rules were, which at least most Americans who read, you know, a horoscope column in a magazine or, or a newspaper just don't get at all. Yeah. No, but for most people, uh, I mean, intellectually, culturally, for most people, astrology would be this more contemporary version. And what we are studying is the history of astrology, mm -hmm. which is very rich and very complex. So for most people, they wouldn't um, they wouldn't take the time to understand. Yeah. It's more like about their solar sign, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And they are happy. And, that's and even, even nowadays, uh, um, when we lecture in academic context on astrology, it still amazes people of how complex it was and, and, exactly. and how much knowledge it was required for them to cast a simple chart or to write a few lines uh, uh, predicting something. Uh, and, and there's still not that idea that it's a complex, it's not something that you would just read and say a couple of things out of nowhere. There was a strong mathematical knowledge of mathematics, then a study of the astrological doctrine itself, and then knowing how to apply all of that to a practical result. And also they don't understand that astrologers were very often physicians or at least very educated people. Of course, there was also a more uh, simplified version, more popular version of astrology, but there was this educated version and that was mainly practiced by uh, physicians or people, at least people with a very good education. So um, it's always a surprise, even for historians, uh, to um, find out about this. And, and it's interesting. It's interesting to, to see that people, when people uh, stop being afraid of the stigma that comes from bringing astrology into <laughs> university, into the academia, um, they become very interested because it's a wonderful addition for people who study medieval history or uh, antiquity. And then they have this extra, extra part mm -hmm. that uh, helps making sense of everything. So yeah, it is, it is interesting.
<laughs> no, it's fun, but I have to always warn my students because I, especially, you know, I'll have maybe undergraduates who come and say, oh, I want to read about medieval astrology or I want to read, especially alchemy. They always say they want to read alchemy. And I have to warn them, the treatises, I mean, even if when you can get an English translation, you say, you're kind of boring to read, right? <laughs> Yeah. You know, the other half of my life, I, I write about saints. Listen, saints' lives, miracles, those are really, really fun to read. <laughs> yeah, lots of, lots yeah. of action in their lives. <laughs> not, not much happy endings, but anyway. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but I, I guess your students uh, would would go to the to the index in the end and looking for transforming lead into gold and just <laughs> trying to to get to that chapter to that specific chapter. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. It is it is a technical, a tech, much more technical and and um, let's say a hard hard science for the at the time. That's what okay. people expect because I usually expect wondrous and the, the fantastic uh, aspect. Uh, one of one of the things that you uh, study and you mentioned in your work is the prophecies, the predictions about the apocalypse. That that is sensational. We have to agree. It's always <laughs> always sensational. And um, I wonder how. Um, well, I have read your articles, but. Um, uh, how do, did they? Um, how were they received? These predictions. I think sometimes people were actually um, expecting the world to end at a certain point, and so it wouldn't be like a surprise, I suppose. What do you think? Right. So, well, I mean, the interesting thing about about Pierre Dailly's work is that, unlike many people who turn to astrology to try to calculate the end of the world. He puts the answer some distance off, right? And so, you know, spoiler alert for for, <laughs> for audience who who hasn't read Pierre Dailly, but this French cardinal predicts that Antichrist is going to arrive in 1789, which is just too wonderful for words, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's kind of interesting. But it's true that he lived in a time when there were a lot of people saying that the world was come to coming to an end, including. St. Vincent Ferrer, whom I've also written about, who was going around preaching that, that Antichrist had been born in the year 1403. And since everybody knew Antichrist as the inverse of Christ was going to appear on the scene when he was age 30, you could do the math. And in 1433, you know, it was going to get bad, let's say. Yes. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's true that, that he's, in a, he's writing at a time when a lot of people are talking about um, talking about that this might be the end of the world. There's always there's always the injunctions in scripture, such as in Acts one. It is not for you to know the times you know that the Father has times and seasons the Father has reserved for Himself. So there's always this you know sort of scriptural loophole that 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 somebody would have to and and. Pierre Dailly does this to say, well, well, I, I, I'm not saying with absolute certainty. And when my students do read, I translated uh, uh, the, the apocalyptic portion of, of Pierre Dailly's last astrological writing, the, the treatise on the persecutions of the church. I, I translated that a number of years ago and use it with my students, especially when I teach the history of apocalyptic thought. And all they pounce upon is how he 
all of the conditionals and the, and the hedging that he puts in. And they just, you know, they just say, oh, can I, can I use slightly off language? They say, oh, he covers his ass, you know, so much. So, <laughs> but, but he, you know, you don't have to be a wise theologian to, to know that these injunctions are there in scripture. So it's, it's, it's true that the, the technique, the tool is there, the technique is there, he's using it. We get hints from Pierre Dailly and we know from other sources that, that there are also theologians who say, this should not happen. You should not use astrology to predict the end of the world because it's going to be a supernatural event. I've tried to suggest, and I'm, I don't know, you know, there are things you think about that you would revise in your work if you could go back and do it at other times. I've tried to suggest a trajectory in the 14th century, where in the late 13th century, in the beginning of the 14th century, sort of the, the theologians who said the apocalypse is going to be completely supernatural, had the upper hand and, and, and could say, no, 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 and therefore we cannot use astrology to mm -hmm. predict it, even though, you know, in, in the 1260s, this is what Roger Bacon was saying we ought to be doing. And that somewhere in the middle of the 14th century, there's a turning point so that it is more and more acceptable in the later 14th century and the early 15th century. For a while, I thought that maybe the Black Death was that turning point. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's entirely only the Black Death, but the Black Death was was surely a moment that people read both in natural terms and including astrological terms, the famous treatise from the University of Paris, but also in apocalyptic supernatural terms, everything that was happening and the sorts of things that chroniclers described as, as preludes to the Black Death all sounded like signs out of the book of Revelation or out of the little apocalypses and the gospels, earthquakes. I mean, the, the chronicles talk about rains, hail and rains of toads and, and mysterious portents in the East, all of which were forecasting or, or precursors to the Black Death. So that this was a, a moment that one could read in both terms and that that somehow if it didn't entirely open the door, it made it more plausible going forward to use both the supernatural evidence of divine revelation in scripture alongside the astrological evidence. And where I've been going with my research on astrology and prophecy and apocalypticism in the last few years has been to look more and more for those moments where the two converge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, where, and, and you find people, and Pierre Dahi does this a little bit, and you find other people who do this who really want to insist that astrology, for all of the, the scientific heft and the, and the technological and mathematical expertise and the complicated rules that are involved in doing it, that it is a means of reading God's revelation that is the book of nature, what's written in the heavens, but also a means that a means and a tool that was given to human beings by God in a revealed form, whether to Adam or to Adam's grandson Seth or to, to Noah or to one of Noah's sons. Um, so so that they are in some senses close to being one and the same, astrology and prophecy.
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And often, as you know, uh, the the people who were prophesizing were uh, clergymen, so were they were also connected yeah. to the church. Yes, in the, in the Latin context, I in think Latin most context. part of astrologers or writers somehow, on astrology yeah. are somehow connected to to, to the church or are, are themselves religious men. Yeah. I, I I was uh, thinking of what you said, and I was doing the the math in my head, like four hundred and three, and then four hundred and uh, yeah, fourteen three oh three, and then for fourteen thirty three, because um, uh, one of the texts I studied in my PhD was written in about the conjunction of 1425 right right before yeah. but um, the, the the man who wrote was re writing in the end of the 15th century like mm -hmm. 1480 or something like that and uh, what he says he says nothing about apocalypse but he says something that is also very relevant for the european culture that would be the defeat of the saracens <laughs> They go back to this again and again. Yeah. So the defeat of the Saracens. So um, he thought because this was this about also this is also you know Anius of Viterbo is saying this in 1480, and the the commentary that I'm working on now, um, which is a commentary on this apocalyptic text Pseudo Methodius, but which cites Pierdayi, but not his astrology and cites Johannes Lichtenberger's prognostication from what, 1486, um, and also cites uh, a, a, a pseudo-treatise attributed to Vincent Ferrer, is also obsessed with the end of the Turks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe 1453 makes all this seem more urgent to Europeans, but it does become something that one speculates on with astrology. No. Completely. No. And they go on to this, keep going on and on. And uh, the other thing he says is the, appear the appearance of a new prophet. Right. Within, right. within Christianity. So mm -hmm. they, it goes, So it's not exactly uh, the apocalypse, but certainly something that is very um, uh, important for mm. European culture, for mm. Christianity. So I don't know. Uh, what I'm always curious about, and probably we don't know, is uh, when they give a specific date and it doesn't happen and they are still alive. <laughs> so what <laughs> What do they say to people? <laughs> that would be... well, at least in the case of Vincent Ferrer, he's dead by the time 1433 yes, comes. Yes, yes. But because he becomes a saint ah. and, and he gets canonized in 1455, there are people who decide they need to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So, so the my my favorite is actually um, Archbishop Antoninus of Florence, who writes a brief biography of, of Vincent mm -hmm. Ferrer, probably around 1460. And this guy, I love him because he just faces his problems head on. <laughs> but he said, you know, he says, you know, okay, um, he he wrote this treatise that in which he says that, you know, Antichrist is born already. And Antoninus says, but, you know, Pope Gregory the Great also said that, that this is at our time. And, and he, you know, he, he was just asserting, he wasn't absolutely. So yeah. it, it, it's really clear that people have to deal with this and they're uncomfortable with it. Yes. I mean, there's a whole school of interpretation, right? What happens when prophecy fails? And, and people <laughs> have found it hard to get out from under 
a set of theories put forward by um, psychologist Leon Festinger in you know what the late 50s or early 60s based on his graduate students infiltrating this cult of people who believed that flying saucers were going to come and, and save them from basically you know some sort of apocalypse and you know and gave a certain day and it didn't happen. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. a recurring theme. Yeah. yeah, I also find that in in some of my papers from from the the 16th and 17th century, it's it's always the, not not exactly the end of the role I buy then, but also the defeat uh, uh, of the Saracen. Yeah. Uh, that's that's, that's a recurrent event. And um, yeah, do you know the work of there's there's a uh, a wonderful scholar who's at Rutgers in in New Jersey in the states, Maite Green Mercado. She's just published a book called Visions of Deliverance about Morisco prophecy in the 16th century. And it's so fascinating because the things that we read or that I read and you're reading from the Christian side predicting the fall of the Turks, all of these things circulate in the Mediterranean. It's not that Christians don't talk to and don't read no. Jews and Muslims and vice versa, so that they kind of get flipped Yes, and yes, and yes. so all of all of these scenarios and promises just get flipped around in the prophecies that her Moriscos are circulating. And it's uh, I I don't know this I author, know, but yeah. I will I will take note in the end. Yeah. And also uh, one of the similar things that we have in Portugal is one of the royal chronicles. They had this, uh, you know, because Portugal is near, somewhat near the North Africa, so they had some. In the Middle Ages, they had some uh, battles with North African uh, kings. And uh, one of the things that the chronicler says, he, he likes to, to mention astrology, even although it's clear that he doesn't really understand too much, but he likes to use astrology to corroborate what he's saying. And he says something like, um, there was this eclipse, and it was so clear that the, the Portuguese were going to win, that even... Even the the uh, Muslim astrologers were completely depressed, and they said, <laughs> "Oh, <laughs> oh, we see that we are not going to win." So he he, he writes uh, fictionally, of course, saying that the the, the other side, the, the other astrologers from the Muslim side, even them, even them, they understand. They they had to understand that this was favorable to our side. So it's very, very interesting. The uses of astrology in propaganda mm -hmm. and right. to keep the morale high. So right. very, very interesting. So yeah. these, these, they are not completely flipping the prophecy, but they were saying that the other side, even the other side had to admit that, <laughs> that wow. we were going to be <laughs> very, very interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of all, all these you know, moments where where Christian authors in, in, in the High Middle Ages and the later Middle Ages get so excited about, you know, for example, that, that passage in Abu Mashar where he describes the, the virgin, the image that rises of the virgin nursing the child mm -hmm. named Jesus. And, and, you know, suddenly you have, you know, Charles Burnett has written about this, you know, suddenly you have a Christian author saying, look, even in the mouth of... <laughs> They must confess to Christian truth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. So it, it is so interesting as astrology is used for several, uh, not only astrology as a technique itself, but also the cultural part is used for 
not propaganda, it's a contemporary mm-hmm. word, but it was used for some kind of uh, propaganda for different uh, kingdoms or kings or uh, cultures, anyway. Yeah, religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I, you know, I, I think it, not only that it's used for propaganda, but, but that it's really important to throw in a few technical terms to just the way, you know, you feel better if you go to the doctor. And, and the doctor doesn't say, well, you know, you're sick and I can see your head hurts. But but if the doctor, you know, throws out, you know, like, oh, you have a neurologism or something, <laughs> then you feel, you know, important and happy. I am so important. I yeah. it, it's just this, you know, that there's some jargon involved. When I'm thinking about Chaucer's Franklin's tale, where suddenly there's all this astrological uh, astrological jargon and you know whether the clerk of Orléans really is able to make the rocks disappear off the coast of Brittany or not <laughs> is irrelevant here it's that the Chaucer has thrown out all of these terms and, and yeah. you know, it gives some legitimacy to yeah. the exactly we we actually have uh, something similar in the chronicles where the chronicler says that um uh, before they go you know the the maritime discoveries and and everything. So before the the ship goes out, there's this priest who gives this uh, mass. He performs a mass, and then he says, the chronicle says that the priest says that um, you see, because um, even the stars are in our side. And then he throws a few astrological things, mm. things because they are not even correct. Yeah, because he but says something like, yeah, uh, Libra, those who were present. Oh, yes. At the moment the decision was made, this is for the, the conquest of Ceuta, which is the, the first movement from the, from the port Outside, Portuguese yeah. discoveries. Right, right. Yeah, and he says that people, the, the, those, those who were, were present, present at the moment the decision was taken, could see could see that it was a, a great enterprise because of the position of the place. And then because Libra is a sign of remembrance or something. He and then something it, like that, yeah. he, he throws a few words of signs and uh, and um, and planets, not very coherent, I have to say, because he was probably acquainted with astrology, but not very much into the, 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 the technical, technical details. So we just say a few things about some signs and some some um, names of planets and, yeah. and this is the chronicler saying that the priest was saying so and it was funny because yeah. it's at the end and, of the use so so he's making his sermon and this comes at the end of the sermon so like the last argument the last argument that he still had an astrological clincher <laughs> to reinforce him so yes the, this is so interesting the, the the way they use these arguments to reinforce their own ideas Mm-hmm. and whatever they wanted to prove and then they had all sorts of arguments and then also the astrological argument so, yeah. 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 Uh, for example I, I'm, I'm working uh, my, 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 my research has been centered as i said 16th 17th century and it's interesting that there's a big difference from from the period of medieval period in the sense that you have all those prohibitions of astrology in place <laughs> with the bulls and, and all of that and at the same time point you do have a lot of prophecy going on and this is this is a strange mixture where they don't do predictions they cannot make predictions with astrology at least as evident as they did in the past of one or two centuries before but at the same time there's a lot of prophecy going on and, and 
And it's a weird mixture mm. because they have to predict naturally so that the, the Inquisition doesn't, um, they, they don't get into trouble with the Inquisition. But at the same time, they're doing all these prophecies. And so you have uh, this mixture of religious arguments with prophecy with astrological evidences, which is a... I think a unique mixture for for that for that period. You, you it can forgot, get very very weird. You forgot to say, Louise is uh, working uh, within the Jesuit context mm. because Jesuits were normally uh, said to be against astrology. But what uh, we have uh, been seeing is that uh, there were a lot of astrological teachers there. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So it's not that they're not that separate from astrology. And this this example that I, I'm I'm recalling is. Uh, a paper that I published in which he has um, the, the the priest does a, a telescopic observation, and one of the first. It, it is yeah. the only the only instance I know a documented instance in which they use an obs an observation by telescope. In this case, of Venus to make an astrological uh, prediction. Yeah. So uh, and because he he sees a difference in shapes. Uh, which either the shall, um, shadows clouds. or clouds of Venus, we're not sure exactly what he saw, but he sees something changing in the surface of Venus. So he interprets that. It's a cross that changes into the the, um, the five shields of the of the, the, the Portuguese, Portuguese uh, crest. crest. So. <laughs> <laughs> they saw a lot of things. And this is together with an eclipse, so then it, it gives a prophecy. But it's it's interesting that it, in, between all of the astrological arguments, it places a lot of prophecy. Wow. Even uh, putting in the symbols and all of that. So he, he goes, he, he covers that with a lot of religious prophecy. So it's a, 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 an odd mixture. Uh, I don't these say are those types of things I love, though. I love these moments. I mean, this is my um, John of Legnano um, in in the 14th century writing this treatise on Christ and Antichrist, mm -hmm. and there's this uh, there's this beautiful. Uh, it, it, so he, John Legnano is this jurist from Bologna who's also interested in the stars and probably. Um, well, almost certainly, as, as Jean-Patrice Boudet would say, an amateur astrologer. And he writes this treatise, and it's amongst a pile of his works there in this beautiful manuscript that's presented to the Pope. So the best illuminator in 14th century Bologna has illuminated this manuscript. And there's this beautiful frontispiece, and it's a picture of the nativity at the top. And then down the side, Old Testament prophets and then alternating ranks of astrologers and civils. Mm -hmm. and, and then just weird stuff at the bottom, like <laughs> Plato, like down under the Old Testament prophets is also Plato because he's citing this idea that in Plato's tomb was found a gold tablet saying, I believe, you know, in, in Christ to come and, and, and another weird thing in the other bottom. But, but this idea that, that and, and you see the same thing, this great illumination in, in Lichtenberger's Pronosticatio. Yeah. <laughs> stuff coming, rays coming out to, to Ptolemy, to Aristotle, to the Sybil, and to Brother Reinhardt. I'm it's sorry, I'm still, I'm still with Plato at the table. Uh, <laughs> I believe in Christ. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm reading medieval 
Plato announced that he believed in Christ that was going to be born several centuries afterwards. Okay, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> just too funny. For... Uh, I'll send you the picture. You'll have to believe it then. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> Thank you. Seeing is believing. Yeah. Yes, seeing is believing. Yeah. Where is the plague? <laughs> the plague. That's the uh, the gold plague. Oh, oh, yeah. You know uh -huh. it. Conveniently lost. Yeah, oh, okay. what a pity. Yeah. I'm sorry, that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's interesting the way they try to validate these older authorities, pagan authorities. They try to Christianize them. They, yeah. they did the same with Aristotle. Yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And, you know. My the my best example, and I don't know if I, I if you have if you don't have this article, I'll send it to you just because I, you'll you'll think it's fun. Uh, there's a there's a whole series of sibyls, right? And mm -hmm. the tradition in the ancient world is that there's ten of them. That's what like Tantius said. At some point, it ends up being twelve instead. Mm -hmm. And by the 1430s, there's a series of these 12 sibyls painted on the walls of a palace of a Cardinal Orsini in Rome. And that's, that's now gone, that it doesn't exist anymore, but descriptions of these circulated. And one of the sibyls, um, and, and so every sibyl has her own prophecy, and they're all prophecies about, you know, the Christ or Christ's, something about Christ's career. One of the sibyls, the line she's spouting is this text out of Abu Mashar, where he's saying, you know, there will arise these stars with this virgin nursing the baby whom people's called Jesus. So suddenly astrology has become prophecy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, it's not, it, it, and, and, it, and this gets picked up and, and reproduced many, many times in the 15th century. Um, and it's just, it, the, these are these moments that I love, and that's that's what you're finding also, Luis. And, and I think it goes back to this idea, right, that astrology is a divinely revealed way of reading God's other book, the book of the heavens, the book of nature. But but that one could come to this assertion or make this assertion, um, it's it makes me very happy. It's I. I've spent, you know, probably the last 15 years looking for instances like this. It's it's very difficult to actively look for them, right? Because, well, I mean, first of all, our sources aren't indexed, but also if they are, you can't type in astrology masquerading as prophecy and, and get, <laughs> get results. So, so, but, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, no, it is, it is quite interesting. One uh, in in this period, in my period of study, it's also the sudden atmosphere, which causes mm -hmm. a lot of this kind of association because you have a completely new set of constellations right. of which there is no tradition. So there is this Christianization of the heavens uh, with these new constellations, and there's, I'm not as familiar with this uh, as I would like, but there is a whole discourse. Uh, right. These new lands, these new skies, and how how they can mean something, and they can yeah. um, somehow tell us something about uh, religion and about Christianity, and it, it's very interesting. And, and how it, convenient that one of them is the Southern Cross. Exactly. exactly. Very convenient. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
yeah, the sudden cross is it's going to be the focus of all this narrative, which is quite interesting. And also the Virgin, uh, which is a, 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 a narrative that appears a lot in South America in particular, and still does, it still, it still left Virgin, that impact, yeah. the Virgin Mary as a cult and as a very strong figure. And then as also the, the, the Lady of the Heavens, so she's right. the Lady of the Stars. So there is this, this um, interaction, very rich interaction of religious discourse, prophecy, and and not exactly astrology, but but the the, the reading of the of the celestial of the heavens. And, and then the the Virgin get gets somehow connected to uh, figures non-religious figures like Yemanja, right. the uh, the mermaid, uh, or other figures that uh, are part of other religions. Mm -hmm. So right. it's kind of this syncretism that comes especially in the new in the new, the new, new world. world yeah the new yes. world is a, is a very interesting oh, case there was this um you you said this um astrologer wrote about the horoscope of the virgin yes uh, something someone wrote i don't uh, about the horoscope it's, it's, one, it's virgin a jesuit Mary. a jesuit mm -hmm. writes and he got into trouble i have to check the name but he, the Inquisition he, was not happy. Did, 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 <laughs> like that. I'm not sure it was the astrology. What it was something he said. It's a little bit out of. Uh, uh, I have to check the name. I don't. I'm not sure. But uh, the name. But and he did. He he was writing a lot about. They were trying to reconstruct um, the horoscope of the Virgin and what was rising. And it's not very astrological. It it is really a religious narrative. Uh, and of, of religious doctrine, but it's still interesting that that, that they're doing this. And, and yeah. is he doing it in a treatise or in the context of a sermon? Or? It's a treatise. It's a whole book. I'll, I'll, I can check and and, and let you know uh, which book is it. Um, I'll have to to see, but it is um, it is a whole book. Um, but he goes into this symbolism. It's more like symbolic than astrological. Yes, it is. Yeah, I know. In the end, I can check it out. Uh, but it is. Uh, oh, awesome. one thing I would like to to ask is about the Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions because you know they happen every twenty years, and we will have one this year. And um, every time they have this, especially if it's the first in the sequence of a new element they would predict at the end of the world or at least very significant changes right. there mm -hmm. was one in 1604 and then and and they, they would they would predict so uh do you um does any of the authors that you do uh, you study uh predicts or mentions any of these conjunctions oh absolutely i mean um I mean, obviously, Pierre Dailly, that's one of the, the cornerstones of his astrological history and also of his, his prediction of the arrival of Antichrist. I think they become, I mean, they become so important in the 15th and 16th centuries, and especially, I think, with printing. And in part because suddenly you don't have to do trigonometry anymore. You just have to be able to add and subtract. The, the interesting thing that happens, and I'm, I'm sure I'm telling you things you already know, is there the, the, that 20-year figure and then the idea of the, the switch to the new set of signs every 240 years is based on the assumption that 
the the gain, the number of so, the number of degrees that these conjunctions will kind of move along on the zodiac, <clears throat> and and these conjunctions are computed according to mean motions instead of true motions, right? So so that whole pattern is based upon the the, the figure for the gain, and what happens in the 16th century is a a different figure for that gain becomes much more prominent. So suddenly what used to be 20 years is shortened and what used to be a 240 year cycle um, for the, the switch is shortened and the 960 years for the whole thing is shortened to more like 800 years. So they're actually different competing figures out there. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so it becomes... <laughs> It becomes quite interesting, but but I, but yeah, I you know, I think they, they were, and they're super important also for this sense in the late fifteenth century, right, of the birth of a new prophet. That's Paul Wilberg, um, his analysis of the fourteen eighty four conjunction says, oh, birth of a new prophet, and then of course that gets picked up later with Martin Luther, and Luther's birth date actually gets adjusted to. Yeah. Before, yes. so that it can be more uh, a more perfect correlation. Yes, but uh, back to astrology is propaganda. Yeah. Part, yes, that <laughs> they were uh, talking about this before because uh, one of the authors I studied, he um, there was this uh, uh, author John of Ascendon, who uh, says that um, the 1365 conjunction was the first in the water sequence. Right. And then uh, there were two others in the air uh, element, and then. The 1425 conjunction, the one that I was mentioning before, uh, was actually the first. So some people still respecting John of Ascendant and uh, saying that he was really the best, of, the best of the best. But whatever he predicted with uh, this uh, 1365 conjunction in Scorpio would actually happen in 1425 also in Scorpio. So they were like trying to adjust the conjunction mm -hmm. and they were still talking again talking about uh the new prophet and the defeat of the saracens of course it's like right. very popular very popular thing. recurrent yeah. recurrent <laughs> and they were they were like adjusting again so what you just mentioned is that the 1485 so two conjunctions after this one three conjunctions after this one again the new prophet they were again talking about this. So yes, they they, they were really um, they were really looking for the the conjunction that would actually bring the new prophet. Right. There was, the problem is the fourteen eighty four isn't really that conjunction. Right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's not the first in a triplicity. No, no. no. So, no. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I I got on this little tangent for a while, and I'm not. I, I don't have enough evidence to know if I'm right or not, but but I was looking actively for treatises, commentaries on the 1484 conjunction in 1484. And I had this hypothesis that there weren't that many in 1484, that it was only sort of in retrospect that people got really excited about that conjunction. I don't know if that's right or not, but, but I, it's it's so important in the 16th century that conjunction but i, I i'm not entirely sure how important it was at the time mm -hmm. yeah that, that mm -hmm. is something that we don't know because sometimes um things don't have an immediate impact they just have i right. don't know 
that would be just my fa- one of my favorite Pierre Dailly fudges, right? Because he says, well, because Saturn and Jupiter are slow moving planets yeah. and because these conjunctions that are rarer that happen, you know, less often, then like flowers that bloom slowly, their effects, you know, might not be felt for centuries. Well, great. You, you know, you can't be wrong if that's your anything between now and eternity, and I'm good. <laughs> yes, <Exactly. laughs> somewhere, sometimes, sometimes between now and eternity. Yeah. And I was also curious because you mentioned spoiler alert that um, the end of the world would be 1738, 1738 or 1735. Uh, that Pierre Dali said that. The, oh, 1789. 1789. 1789. Yeah, 1789. And uh, did uh, when they got to 1789, um, how, how did was, someone notice that? Did the, someone notice? Oh, thank coming? you for asking that question. I wondered about that question for years, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, I asked everybody I knew who was revolution and was going off and spending time in the Archive Nationale in Paris, will you look for me? For years, I asked people. I finally had the chance to try to answer that question a couple of years ago. There was a, a conference, a retrospective about Pierre Dailly in Paris in 1417. And Philip Notoff was there, for example. Jean-Patrice Boudet was there. So there were a few of us interested in astrology there. And I said, can I work on this question? And I have to say, I think it's a question I couldn't have answered without the internet and as many things as are available. But the, the short answer is no. And, and the reason is in part that Pierre Dailly was being read differently by people who were reading his astrological works starting really in the 16th century. That, that prediction for 1789 is based upon three factors. There's a conjunction, which is I think 1695, if I remember right. There's the completion of, of um, a, a number of cycles by Saturn, a 300 or, or a number of orbits by Saturn, a 300 year cycle. And, and then there's this status or, or, or station of the eighth sphere and we can go into what that means if you like, which is a 25 year period um, around 1789. Hmm. So of course, later readers knowing the French revolution begins with the storming of the Bastille in 1789, like much later readers like me, pounce upon the 1789. But what happens is readers in the 15th and 16th century start looking at the other dates also. Hmm. And at some point, and now I can't remember precisely when, um, the focus really becomes on this 25-year status, in part because this guy, um, Pierre Turel, tries to write a world history really based on the motions of the eighth sphere that has this 7,000-year cycle, which is beautiful and perfect eschatologically, so then broken into four periods punctuated by these stations of 750 years. 1750 years so so he really puts the focus on that and then when people start picking picking up on on Pierre Dailly 
they pick up on the idea of this station, but they take the 25 years and they add it to 1789, and it becomes a prediction about Napoleon and Napoleon's eventual defeat and exile. Uh, so that's when he gets picked up. And at the time of 1789, the, the astrological focus is upon a slightly different prediction that's based, if I'm remembering my own research correctly, based on the idea of these 800 year cycles. So, so the, the, the date that's current in 1789 isn't 1789. Mm -hmm. And what Pierre Dailly is known for, and, and his dating has already been in the 16th century, a focus has been put on 25 years after 1789. So it's, it's actually a long answer to get to know, but then it's really fun to watch how 19th century scholars start rediscovering this aspect of Pierre Dailly and to kind of go full circle on his importance and on some of your comments about new world and discoveries. What really makes this aspect of Pierre Dailly's work come to the fore and come to the eyes of scholars and the public again is the fact that he catches the eye of Alexander von Humboldt, who's writing this long sort of, you know, kind of history of, of these con or, or of discovery and conquest. And when he's writing about Columbus, he gets really interested in Pierre Dailly. And there's this beautiful um, series of pages in Humboldt where he's got two or three lines about Columbus here on the top. And then he's got most of the page is footnoted material where he's reading Pierre Dailly. And, and he actually, Humboldt's amazing. He actually goes back and gets somebody to look at a 15th century edition of the Alphonsine tables mm -hmm. to see if what Pierre Dailly is saying about, about the motion of the eighth sphere is right. Okay. That yeah. Is, and it, it was it right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was this part. Yes, on the Alphonsine tables was right, but but as as we as we know from Jean-Pierre Boudet's researches now, uh, Pierre Dailly himself, as I always suspected, was you know sort of a humbug. But he had a research team who was quite skilled, and so they were feeding him good information. But the problem was, as they kept learning a little more, he he contradicts himself and has to correct himself as he's getting better and better information from his team. <laughs> New data, so New <laughs> data. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> and um, how about your current research? Uh, what what is has been your your main focus of research uh, nowadays? So yeah. So after so after Pierre Dailly, I continued thinking about this period of the Great Schism and continued thinking about apocalypticism, and I did a whole study of the, not the life of, but but the canonization and cult of this preacher, St. Vincent Ferrer, the guy who said Antichrist has been born in 1403. So that took me away from astrology for my main research for, for some time, but I, but it, it doesn't die, right? And so, so I kept on this, really this, what I call looking for a needle in a haystack of trying to find these moments like the Sybil who spouts Abu Mashar or John of Lignano with this beautiful illustration where astrologers and Sibyls are really on equal footing and Plato's down there finding his gold tablets in the corner to make Helena laugh. And it's frustrating though, because as I said, there's no active way to look for a needle in a haystack, but I kept it alive and I've been interested in 
sort of invented histories of astrology that help validate astrology as revealed knowledge, many of which lead back to this apocalyptic text called Pseudo-Methodius, or which is to say it's attributed to a third century bishop named Methodius. It was written in Syriac in the late seventh century, translated in the early eighth century into both Greek and Latin and circulated widely in Western Europe. And it does predict the ultimate defeat of, of the, the Muslims. So it very much feeds into some of the concerns we were talking about. And a couple of years ago, I really literally stumbled across a commentary on this text that was written and published in Augsburg in 1496 um, by a man called Wolfgang Eitinger. And it, it really surprisingly hasn't been studied very much. But thanks to the miracle of the internet, right, you find something and you, especially if it was printed in the early ages of print, in early years of printing, you know, you can look at four incunables of it. So I was able to pull this thing up the, the day I find a reference to it. And I swear, I'm not making this up, the first page I scrolled to had on it the name Pierre Dailly. And the second page I scrolled to had on it the name Vincent Ferrer. <laughs> and then Johannes Lichtenberger. So I've been working on this commentary, reading this commentary, trying to figure out what the author's doing, how he's using and not using astrology, because he's he's very much interested in in predicting that the Turks are going to be defeated and that a last Roman emperor is going to rule, is going to defeat them, reform the church and rule over a period of peace, all of which is predicted in Pseudo-Methodius. And he's very interested in plugging that into, you know, his own times. He, in fact, he does give a date, or, or he implies a date, I should say. It, you know, you just have to do one simple addition because he says it's going to be 56 years after the Turks take Constantinople. So, you know, you can add. And it's interesting though, he completely ignores Pierre Dailly's astrology. Mm. He takes other things from Dailly. He's read Anius, Anius of Viterbo. He cites Anius of Viterbo, but not the astrological portions of that treatise on the defeat of the Turks. He's read Lichtenberger. He cites one astrological portion from Lichtenberger, but not. So he's really doing his own thing. So it's a really interesting study in one one cleric's mentality in the late 15th century but two it's it's led me to an interest in how this whole pseudo-methodius treatise was read throughout the middle ages and my current hope is to start surveying the manuscripts because already in what i've been diving into from what again we can pull, we can see online, and again, thank you for the internet. It's made scholarship during COVID possible. There are actually interesting differences in the manuscripts. It's been known that the treatise circulated in a short version and a long version, and that the short version was much more popular. My commentaries on the long version, but um, that there are subtle distinctions between all of these, and and and, and on some interesting points. I've, has not really been been noted before. And my commentator, he's clearly interested in Pseudo-Methodius, I think, as authorizing astrology because he he presents an edition of 
the treatise before his commentary. And he adds, or I believe he adds, I haven't found it in any other manuscript, he adds a line to this portion where Pseudo-Methodius describes how God has given astrology to, to this son of Noah's, Yonitus, who's born after the flood, and what happens then with it. He adds some lines to, to really, I think, stress the fact that this is a God-given art. And he adds other lines to, at, at another place in the text, to denigrate magical arts. And, and I think he's really trying to separate astrology from magical arts. Um, so I've, I've just been fascinated by this commentary, by the way this treatise was read. And it's, it's leaving me, you know, you're asking about what's the importance of history of astrology in one's work. It's leading me on these sort of, I'm not really looking at an active astrologer, even at an active amateur astrologer, but it's leading me on these really interesting ways in which astrology is, you know, sort of lurking around the edges of prophecy um, in the in the high and later Middle Ages. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. I hope I hope you to be able to read <laughs> your conclusions. Yes. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, well, we could stay. <laughs> we could stay here forever talking about these things. <laughs> I agree. But um, we thank you very much uh, for for, this for sharing. Yes, yeah, for sharing this with us. It was it was very interesting, and and I think it's I, I don't know. It's very it, it's important to know that the role that astrology and plays around all these narratives. Um, of prophecy and all this, but and it's like you said just now. It's it's always there, even if if marginally. It's always there, hanging around and, and participating more actively or less, or sometimes supporting just a small argument. Sometimes it, it is the center of the argumentation that it's always there, um, present in, in the discourse of the, uh, uh, of trying to understand <laughs> what is to come. Um, so so yes. Uh, for now, thank you, thank and you. we will keep in touch because. Yeah. Oh, thank you. This has been yes. this has been a joy to have this conversation. But but you must um, now pay me back by sending me your work. Yes, because I can't wait to read it. Certainly. With pleasure. Certainly. And uh, not only that, but uh, I will send you a few references that uh, about some things that we talked about. Mm -hmm. That would be awesome. Thank, thank you. Yeah. And we will keep in touch. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>